Well, welcome to topic three, where we're going to be considering the concept of competence and also the idea of loyalty, particularly when we look at the duty of loyalty in the retainer between the solicitor and the client that may even outlast the retainer in some instances and how that uh, relates to the duty to avoid conflicts. So in this first podcast, we're going to predominantly focus in on competency and the different sources legally of the duty to act competently. We're also going to consider um, advocates immunity as well, which is a immunity that practitioners have in tort uh, in Australia as the only common law jurisdiction, because interestingly, that's been done away with in other jurisdictions. And then in the second podcast, we're going to focus in a little closer on the uh, idea of competency and also loyalty in terms of managing and preventing conflicts of interest. So lawyers clearly owe to their clients um, very clear obligations of acting competently and acting with loyalty. The client is entitled to expect that from you. Now, the obligations of competency, firstly, come from three main sources. Firstly, they come from legislation, the legal profession uniform law, and within that, the definition of unsatisfactory professional conduct and professional misconduct at section 296 and 297. They also arise in tort. It's a part of the duty of care relationship that you will execute the retainer um, to a standard that is competent and careful. And thirdly, you owe competency under the contract. It's an implied term of the contractual retainer that the work will be performed competently and diligently. Looking at the duty of loyalty, where does that arise? Well, that's an interesting one. It's got two sources, really. The first comes from uh, a well-known obligation as a fiduciary and the fiduciary nature of many retainers. We often say that the client-lawyer relationship is a fiduciary relationship. However, to be strictly correct, fiduciary duties and their enforcement only arise when the solicitor is required to exercise discretion, trust, power or authority over the client's affairs for the client's benefit. So, for example, if you were just simply retained as a solicitor to advise a client, just to give legal advice, then there's no fiduciary aspect to that relationship. And the case of Beach Petroleum suggests to us that it would not be considered a fiduciary relationship um, in terms of loyalty in that regard. But that doesn't mean that there's not an obligation of loyalty, even if it's not a fiduciary relationship, because loyalty also comes not just from the uh, fiduciary nature of a relationship, but it can also come as an implied term of the contract. And that comes about when you simply cannot accept instructions from subsequent clients that may conflict with your existing or former clients matter and create a conflict because you're compromising your duty of confidentiality and also your duty of loyalty. So loyalty arises in two possible sources and we're going to consider those. The duty of loyalty also is implicit in the professional rules of conduct. If you have a look at rule 4.1.1, where it says that you as a solicitor are required to act in the best interests of the client in any matter in which you represent them. So how we characterise the obligations of competency and loyalty legally matters. And the reason it matters is because if these duties are breached, different remedies may apply with potentially different proceedings being brought. 
So therefore, um, something like an incompetent execution of legal work may result in firstly disciplinary proceedings in the Occupations Division of NCAT uh, for unsatisfactory professional conduct. It may also result in a legal action for breach of contract or negligence uh, in a common law jurisdiction. And it may also, if it's a breach of loyalty, be um, a situation where the client's seeking the remedy of an injunction or an order by the court to restrain you from acting if you have breached that duty of loyalty. If, for example, you've breached a fiduciary duty of loyalty and you've allowed um, a conflict of interests or you've profited from the relationship where you're not permitted to, equitable remedies for breach of fiduciary obligations, such as a constructive trust, an account of profits or equitable compensation may all become possible. So how we characterise the legal nature of these duties matters in terms of the client's remedy against a solicitor. A failure to act competently means that the practitioner is open to be sued and it also means that it's open for disciplinary proceedings. It's important to distinguish between each of the causes of action. Now in contract, a breach of uh, competency and care is a breach of the implied term of the retainer and usually damages will be the remedy. In tort, uh, there's a well-recognised category of duty between solicitor and client, and the content of that duty is to act with competence and care. And if the client suffers damage as a result of your incompetence or your lack of care, then damages can be awarded provided the client has suffered loss and that loss is causally connected to the incompetence. Where there's a breach of trust or loyalty, they may, as I said, have breached their fiduciary duties. Now, in tortious terms, um, the standard of care was first established in the case of Hawkins and Clayton Oots, and it was articulated by the High Court as being qualified, competent and careful. It's interesting to ask yourself then, well, what do these terms mean? Qualified, competent and careful. In New South Wales and most other jurisdictions since Hawkins and Clayton, there's been civil liability legislation implemented and that has altered somewhat the standard of care that's owed because we now have statutory tests. A good example of this is Section 5.0 of the New South Wales Civil Liability Act and that has a peer standard of professional opinion as to what the standard of care should be. So the standard of practice that is widely accepted as being competent and accepted practice by other members of the profession will be the standard of care. So previously, whilst the Hawkins and Clayton standard applied, it's now fairly conclusive that a defendant solicitor is incompetent in a negligence sense if their standards or their actions fall short of what's accepted practice by other members of the profession. Now, it's important to note that this is um, an objective test. It doesn't consider the particular practitioner's uh, experience or habits. It considers objectively what a practitioner should do. And it also doesn't necessarily look at things like the fact that you're only recently graduated or still learning on the job, because as I said, it's an objective test. And that comes under the issue of supervision, which I'll touch on in a moment. So sometimes, uh, Acting competently requires lawyers to take positive steps to do things that they might not think normally arise from the retainer. A good example is that you have a personal injury matter that you're instructed to act in. Advising the client on the limitation period is a really important part of that, even though you might think that that's part of the retainer. 
In other instances, um, it requires lawyers not to do things such as to avoid taking on work in areas where they might lack skill and experience, or at least appointing counsel to act to advise. See Vulek and Belinsky in this regard. A good example of taking steps to do things that go beyond the retainer in order to behave competently is the case of Snapkowski and Jones. Now, this was a situation where a solicitor was consulted by a husband and wife as the clients. They wanted to transfer property between husband to wife, giving her a share in the property. And whilst the solicitor executed that retainer and did so competently, what she failed to do was to advise both clients on the capital gains tax implications of transacting the transfer. And it was held uh, by a disciplinary tribunal that this was incompetent practice because sometimes solicitors have to advise clients on the outcomes of the matter that they're instructed in and on further implications of what they're advising on. And if we look at the Office of the Legal Services Commissioner's annual report, it's interesting to see and note how many practitioners are disciplined for incompetence each year and how many claims are prosecuted in this regard. Now, one of the ways in which you can behave competently is that sometimes solicitors need to decline retainers where they consider they are simply unable to perform the work. And that might be because they don't practice in that area or they know they can't perform the work in a timely, efficient and competent manner. Now, barristers, although there is the cab rank rule, they may also determine not to accept briefs where they consider they lack experience or skill. So that leads us to the question of, okay, what is competence? It's a tricky question. It's not defined in the legislation and we get all sorts of definitions within case law. One author defines the parameters of competence as broadly encompassing the quality of legal services, the ethics of practice, the access to legal assistance and the affordability of those legal services. Competence can also be seen to keep abreast of changing technology and issues that affect our clients. And in modern definition also, we define competence as embracing cultural competency, the ability to work cross-culturally and to understand the worldview, perspective and manner of communicating by clients of different cultural backgrounds. Um, certainly, cultural competency is part of your degree at Charles Sturt University as a core graduate attribute. One thing is certain though, when we're talking about competency, the duty to perform work with competence is also reflected in our conduct rules and that competence involves many facets. It's not just head knowledge and legal skill. It's the ability to manage workloads and time demands and to execute work in a cost-effective manner. What is and what is not competent behavior changes with time and innovation. And many legal practitioners for this reason tend to specialise or practice in one or a few areas of expertise simply because they don't feel that they can possibly be across every area of law and advise every client competently on every aspect. Um, at other times, a lack of competence may require a lawyer to refer the client to another legal practitioner and to decline a brief, or it may require you to fully disclose to a client, if you're acting competently, that you're not really qualified to advise on every aspect of the client's matter. And with the client's informed consent about um, your limitations and about the cost implications to brief out either barristers or other experts or other legal practitioners to complement and provide a full legal service to the client. See Vulik and Belinsky in this regard.
So, for example, the case of Snapkowski, again, had the solicitor realised there were tax implications but felt ill-equipped to advise on that, she could have told the client that whilst she could perform the transfer work in terms of a conveyance, that she would seek advice from a qualified practitioner on tax implications for the client. One thing's for sure, accepting a retainer in an area where you know you lack competency and without properly informing your client of that lack of competency exposes you to an action in negligence. And it can also result in disciplinary sanction for you under Section 296, which defines unsatisfactory professional conduct as the practice of law that falls short of the standard of competence and diligence that a member of the public is entitled to expect of a reasonably competent lawyer. So it's interesting that this definition at section 296 remains in statute but hasn't translated into the conduct rules as it has done in other jurisdictions. But we're going to assume that the definition of what constitutes competence and diligence will be determined with reference to the common law standards and in terms of precedent. Just because somebody's negligent, you should note, doesn't mean that there will be disciplinary action. And vice versa too, just because there's disciplinary action doesn't always mean there's a case in negligence. So whilst acknowledging that competency covers a broad range of skills, knowledge and attributes, the way we define what is and what is not competent is with reference to the actual conduct of other members of the profession and what that profession deems as competent. Now, there's a number of ways our profession seeks to ensure the competency of its practicing lawyers. It's not just a case of graduating from university and bang, all of a sudden you're competent, <laughs> far from it. This is done by firstly mandating what you must cover in an accredited law degree. So looking at Schedule 1 in terms of the areas um, of required teaching in an accredited law degree, which is your pre C 11 essentially. Secondly, once you've graduated from a law school, you have to complete an approved course in PLT with an approved provider, which gives you those practical skills in terms of competency. But thirdly, competence is also achieved uh, by the regulating authorities of the profession by setting continuing professional development requirements that are attached to the annual renewal of your practicing certificate. CPD, as it's called, requires practitioners to undertake a specified number of hours each year in professional development in areas of substantive law, legal ethics, professional skills and practice management. So um, for an example of this, have a look at the legal profession uniform continuing professional development rules of 2015, rules six and seven. That's how the profession seeks to actually make sure that you begin competently and develop competently as you go through legal practice. But frequently it's delay rather than a lack of expertise that amounts to incompetency and that lack of balancing competing demands in legal practice that results in disciplinary proceedings. And it's no excuse that you're a new or an inexperienced solicitor and that that's the reason you're incompetent. Clients are entitled to expect that the lawyer acting for them is competent. And the High Court has certainly held in tort law that uh, just because you're an inexperienced and incompetent learner driver, for example, doesn't mean that the same objective standard as the reasonable driver shouldn't be applied to you. And if we use that reasoning, it also applies to lawyers that just because you're a new graduate doesn't mean that you shouldn't be expected to behave like a reasonable solicitor. Perhaps it's for this reason that we have a regime of restricted practices, practicing certificates and supervision in New South Wales. 
And yet, despite this and the legislative requirements that you be supervised and that you only do what uh, is supervised under a restricted certificate, we still see many young graduates and paralegals sent off to court with files in their arms that they've not only never read, have no idea what's going on in, and sometimes, heaven forbid, have never even met the client. Talking about supervision, let's have a chat about its relationship to competence. Frequently, in larger law practices, work on a client's matter will be undertaken by several people within the legal practice, and all of those people have differing experience. Australian Solicitors Conduct Rule 37 requires that the legal practitioner with the designated responsibility for the matter is the person responsible for the supervision of all work performed by every other person, both lawyers and non-lawyers, within the legal practice. So the buck stops with the principal. The principal's duty to supervise also extends to being aware of potential breaches by fellow partners and all staff. In this regard, see Antisovnik and Berktu. The responsibility that remains with the designated practitioner also applies in agency situations. So it's no defence that the solicitor who negligently or fraudulently performed work was inexperienced or not legally qualified. The designated practitioner or principal or the law practice as a whole will be vicariously liable for all acts and omissions and equally as responsible under the disciplinary regime. The courts will deal very firmly with a lack of supervision, and this is shown in the judgment of D'Alessandro and D'Angelo and Bulladas, a 1994 decision. There, an 81-year-old solicitor was held in breach of Rule um, 37 of the Conduct Rules when his son transferred a significant amount of trust money uh, in the legal practice from the from trust to office in order to pay legal costs that they were not entitled to. The older solicitor was found vicariously liable because he was principal of the firm and he had a clear duty to supervise him and to check on the operation of the firm's trust account. So it wasn't enough that the younger son who might have been inexperienced uh, did this or fraudulently did this, the buck stopped with the principal. The older solicitor was guilty of professional misconduct. Equally, authorised principles of incorporated legal practices are vicariously liable for the acts and omissions of lawyers in practice. In this regard, see section 111 of the Uniform Law. There are many professional acts that are negligent, uh, but not always will they be disciplined as a consequence of that. And equally, just because disciplinary proceedings exist doesn't mean necessarily that there is negligence. Competence also entails keeping the client informed of their matter and making sure they understand what's going on. It also means keeping um, work completed in a reasonable time frame. As I've noticed, as I noted before, delay is often a very uh, fertile ground for complaints to the Legal Services Commissioner. So as an example of this, sometimes delay can have other implications for competence in terms of breach of contract and negligence. For example, a client who's waiting on a solicitor to prepare a will and dies um, of unexpected causes in the meantime might have every reason uh, for their beneficiaries to question the competency of the solicitor. This is part of the standard of care, but it's also a key aspect of the professional rules, namely Rule 7.1, which requires timely advice, and Rule 13, which requires completion of the retainer. Failing to carry out your client's instructions is also deemed by the conduct rules as incompetence, see Rule 8.1. 
So the implications of lawyers acting incompetently can have both disciplinary consequences, but also legal consequences in terms of legal liability. Now, I've mentioned that sometimes lawyers can be liable to people um, for incompetence who actually aren't their clients. And this is rare because normally it's the retainer that circumscribes the duties to whom we owe um, a duty of competency. But sometimes it can extend to third parties. Courts are usually reluctant to extend a duty of care to a third party because it can create a conflict of interest between the solicitor and their own client. However, in certain instances, the law has well recognised um, categories that there are duties to third parties who are affected by incompetence of a solicitor who are not party to the retainer. And a good example of this is in wills and probate law. When a solicitor's client dies, the solicitors have additional duties to carry out the instructions of their former client in terms of executing the terms of the will and notifying beneficiaries and executors and administrators of the estate. This may mean also owing a duty of care to beneficiaries of the will to notify them of testator intent and to ensure testamentary wishes are affected. Um, making sure the will was properly executed is also something that can give rise to a tortious duty of care to a disappointed beneficiary if you haven't executed the will properly. In this regard, see Hill, trading as RF Hill and Associates and Van Earp. Where solicitors allow third parties also to think that the solicitor is acting in their interests when in fact they're not, the court will find you owe a duty of care and you have to act competently. Case of Watkins and Devada uh, 2003 illustrates this. So essentially the tortious principles of reliance and economic loss um, work the same here in terms of duty of care to third party. And if a solicitor has allowed reliance on their advice or their services by a non-client, the law will find that they nonetheless owe a duty of care and a duty that is um, a requirement to act competently in relation to breach and loss, provided the loss is not too remote. So solicitors must tread very carefully about who's relying on their advice, who might be relying on the legal services beyond the immediate person sitting in front of you and known as the client. Sometimes it can go a lot further than that and you must be very careful in terms of the implications of the work you are doing. What about the duty of specialists? Well, as the law becomes more complicated, we tend to see lawyers specialising in certain areas of practice and not accepting work outside of their areas of expertise. This is really important because it's a viable risk management tool. A lawyer can't possibly be an expert on every area of law, contrary to what the general public think of us. However, you'll note that there is some argument against specialisation in some textbooks, particularly noting that clients' legal problems are often multidisciplinary and can stretch across several areas of law, not neatly fitting into your area of expertise. That's true, but having said that, we certainly do have a rigorous system of accredited specialists in New South Wales and certification that certain people are experts in their areas. With that comes greater training, increased CLE or CPD requirements, um, and you would argue that um, commensurate with this is a higher standard of care that's owed to their clients in their areas. And this was affirmed in Hayden and in RMA. So in this regard, it's reasonable to expect that if you do consult an accredited specialist, they will have a higher standard of care and they are expected to know their area of law intimately. Let's just talk briefly about um, advocates' immunity from liability. 
as I noted previously, and as is noted in your textbook, there are several specific circumstances where barristers and solicitors have an immunity in common law from being found negligence for failure of competency. Now, the reason behind this is that it's in the interests of public policy and the efficient working of the adversarial system. Some critiques um, say that, no, it's actually in self-interest of lawyers that we have this immunity. But I do think there are very cogent arguments as to why the immunity should be retained and has been retained in Australia. Both barristers and solicitors have immunity from suit, which means that you can't be sued for incompetence in advocacy in the courtroom or work outside the court that's closely connected to the courtroom. The immunity said to extend to work carried out in the court context and intimately connected with it because that is considered to be something that the advocate may be conflicted with in terms of the competing obligations of their duty to the client versus their higher obligation or duty to the court. Now, the most recent judgment on this area is Atswell's Jackson Lalic Lawyers, where the High Court considered uh, the words intimately connected and how far the immunity extended. And in that case, it was held that settlement negotiations outside of court were not um, covered by advocates' immunity. The reason behind this immunity is that, as we shall learn in later modules, a solicitor and barrister's first and highest duty is to the court and the administration of justice, not to their clients. Sometimes that means that the duty of candour and honesty to the court may actually amount to negligence in advancing your client's case. And the higher duty is that you act with candour to the court. If you think about this, there's multiple areas where decision-making impacts a client's case. The questions we choose to ask of witnesses, the documents we choose to tender, the witnesses we call, are all aspects that require professional discretion and judgment, but are guided by that higher obligation of the duty to the court. Um, and there are good reasons, therefore, to maintain advocates' immunity. Uh, it's noted in one text, um, Barron and Corbyn's text, that there are good reasons for the duty, and these include, firstly, that they preserve, it preserves the finality of court adjudication in litigation and doesn't undermine this by allowing subsequent re-litigation through negligence. Secondly, it prevents that conflict of the duty to the client and the duty to the court. Um, and thirdly, um, it, it also promotes the efficient administration of justice and the finality of determinations. You should have a look at the discussion in Giannarelli and Wraith and Diorta and Ikene of Victorian Legal Aid, which is contained within your text. The final aspect of competency we need to consider is alternate dispute resolution. In the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules, the word court is defined very broadly, and this definition includes alternate dispute resolution processes such as arbitration and mediation. That being so, the duties of competency contained in the rules extend, therefore, to alternate dispute resolution just as much as they do to litigation. Have a look at Rule 7.2, also of the Conduct Rules. It specifically requires practitioners to advise their clients of alternate dispute resolution options prior to commencing litigation, which means that part of being competent is understanding what options are available to the client as an alternate process. And this is also reflected in the procedural court rules and practice notes in many jurisdictions as well. Thanks for listening to this podcast. In our next podcast, we're going to consider loyalty and conflicts of interest.